0: Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. How's it
1: going? It's all right. Guess where we're going? Speaking of going. Oh, we are going to Yakima, Washington, I think. Right. On the dry, warm side of the mountains. No rain, just Yakima and it's nice desert climate. And we're going to talk about liturgy, both of us, you and me. we're We're doing
0: a traveling transfigured conference and we'll be there on March 27th and 28th. So if you're in the area, you want to go, that'd be great. And we have our young adult liturgy conference this summer. You're
1: coming to that, right? Even though I'm I'm an old adult, I still have something to say, I guess.
0: That's true. So that will be on June 26th, 27th, and 28th. So you can join us for that. And this week, we're talking about some things in the Mass that could be done a little bit better
1: with you. Yeah. Or you could call them my favorite complaints. But let's call them (laughs) things that could be done better. (laughs) Sounds good. So
0: without further ado, episode 17 of season four of The Liturgy Guys.
2: Enjoy.
1: Chris, Dennis, are you there? Jesse, I'm here for the moment. (laughs) Well, Jesse probably knows better than anyone that sometimes I can be cranky. Don't don't have enough coffee or the blood sugar Too much coffee, blood sugar
2: too high. uh,
0: Yeah, (laughs) neck lamentations, what was that word you said? What
1: word? lamentations. Oh, yeah. Lamenting about things that I experience liturgically. But normally I don't lament. I don't get sad. I get angry. And it's not healthy. But sometimes that's just things you have to say, oh, well, you know, Jesus is here in the Eucharist and move on. And there's not much more you can do. However, we are the liturgy guys, right? And so we don't just want to live through bland mediocrity tending toward indifferent uh, error, right? Maybe you do, Chris, but I don't. <laughs> it's so, me this far. <laughs> I've come up with a list of my 12 cranky complaints of things that I often see at mass that either we're supposed to do that we don't do, or things that we do that we're not supposed to do. Oh, boy.
0: Yeah. This is, this is you know what's going to happen? What's I'm going to I'm going to start noticing these things, and I'm going to be mad vicariously <laughs> through you. You're like,
1: right. I don't know why I'm supposed to be mad, but Dennis said this sucks. That's right. So <laughs> anybody listening to this podcast now, there is You're a double be sword to this, right? One is, oh, now I know. That's awesome. And the other one is going to be, oh, nobody does it. It drives me crazy. So... This, that could be a spoiler. Maybe you can uh, turn it off mm-hmm. now if you're not ready to enter that liturgical space. <laughs> but how do you rescue me from my crankiness, Chris? Because I don't want to just be the guy griping oh, with a list of complaints. Yeah. Pie crust. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, raise my All blood sugar right. with pie crust.
2: Well, I don't know, Dennis, but here, here's two things that come to mind first. And I know these these are things that you know already, but the first is, is that um, uh, it, it, the liturgy isn't about our... Personal preferences or likes or dislikes or wishes or pet peeves or desires or idiosyncrasies or anything uh, like that but it's it's the reason why we dislike those is hopefully not because of our personal oh angle on things but because there's an objective order to the liturgy that when any of us does something out of oh out of keeping with that objective beauty this Heavenly givenness, this ontological reality, as I heard somebody say once. Yeah, What uh, crackpot? <laughs> if it is, then it uh, uh, it 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 doesn't let the liturgy, you know, radiate its uh, its fullness, and so yes. that that would be, I, I guess, the first thing that came to mind is okay. that. So
1: here's one of my extreme examples: someone makes oh. you pie crust. Vicky Delaney sends you pie crust, right? Because she's awesome, mm-hmm. and then. Somebody comes along and says, oh, let me spread some mayonnaise on that or some, you know, garlic salt or something. You're like, no. Okay, keep going. What else? I, I, well, dog poop, I don't know, whatever. The worst possible thing you could put on your uh, pie crust. You say, oh, well, you're just a stickler because you like your pie crust that way. No, because it's offending and ruining the objective reality of encountering that thing, the ontological reality. And so if the liturgy has a goal, which is to allow us to participate in encounter in the things of heaven, anything that steps away from that is not just a personal preference question, but it's actually Mm -hmm. a lowering of the capacity of the liturgy to allow us to be transformed through its transformative power. No dog poop on
2: pie crusts. Okay, there (laughs) you go. That's just a given. Now that we have that settled. Yes. Yeah, but I think to, you know the reason why, uh, and it's not just Dennis. You know, the Church has this desire that the liturgy be celebrated um, in a particular way. I mean, there, there's allowances for particular adaptations and changes to, you know, to certain needs and groups and whatnot. But on the whole, and you know, as as I think as we go through these post-conciliar uh, instructions, we've seen the Church be pretty clear about you know nobody has has the uh, permission to take liberties with the liturgy even a Be- priest even e- a yeah priest. even a priest 22 i believe yeah. yeah but it's because you know what what the liturgy is doing through its signs and symbols is you know radiating this ontological reality it uh w- which is heaven and if we get that symbol system Mixed up somehow by what we say or don't say, do or don't do, wear or don't wear, you know the postures that we should be using or not be using, whatever, then it um, it muddles and it, and it uh, dims this radiance. Yes,
0: and um, it rescues
2: me from being cranky, merely cranky, uh,
1: to having the high elevated desire yeah. that the liturgy shine its radiance. I think
0: light just on rescuing people. rescuing you from being cranky is enough. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, he'll that's just good. end up
2: being cranky about something else. But, that's true. Uh, but, you know, a couple of analogies we, we've used before. I mean, Dennis, you and you know, Dr. Fagerberg have talked about uh, the, this word, uh, uh, the cosmos, and how mm-hmm. it's the root of the word uh, cos, uh, cosmetics. Yes. And so when you, Order. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you're all chaotic and you're... You know, your hair is all over the place and your mustache is not waxed and all of the rest. Yeah, I like never chaos. have that problem. Yep. So would you, what you do is you apply uh, different kinds of cosmetics to reorder and to beautify yourself. Yeah. And the idea is that the liturgy is the kind of the world's cosmetic. So with sin, mm. it's become fallen and chaotic and ugly and disordered and the rest... And what the liturgy does is, uh, uh, Fagerberg always used to quote uh, Aidan Kavanaugh this line, liturgy does the world the way the world was meant to be, done, be done from the beginning. Right, is praise of it, God, all in union with each other, everything yeah, is light in and color order, and song and delight. In beauty, in yep. it's cosmetic perfection. And so when the liturgy is not cosmetic, but is chaotic for a variety of reasons, mostly because people are involved, <laughs> you know, we tend to uh, muck things up then uh, uh, that can be a problem. But another analogy that comes to mind, and I only know this second or third or fourth hand, uh, I think it's um, uh, a line from Pascal. And it goes something along the lines of if the the nose on Cleopatra's face were just a a millimeter uh, shorter, the whole face of the world would have changed. Have you ever heard this? I have never heard that. Okay, nope. What, he, what he's getting at is, uh, if I remember my Roman history, is Cleopatra. You know, this, the queen of Egypt. Uh, you know, was was so beautiful, her face was just right. That uh, right, she uh, was it. Mark Antony or mm-hmm. and Caesar, right? So they both uh, were in love with her, and they caused this. You know, this great uh, upheaval in the. Uh, uh, Roman Republic and then leading to the Roman Empire just because of her face was just so and if her yeah. if her nose would have just been a little bit different, then she wouldn't have been uh, the, the loving object and desire of yeah. Caesar and Mark Antony and all that wouldn't have happened. She looked and, like you in a dress the history <laughs> so of the right. world would have been. Right. But I gather what uh, Pascal if the it ships would the ships would have went the other <laughs> way. That's right who would, that, that's a different uh, the, uh, that isn't that uh, Helen? Yeah. Helen of Troy. But um, what I gather what he means by that is, you know, art is in, and beauty is in, you know, the most fine, the, the finest of details. And so it, it you know, think of uh, the Mona Lisa smile. If the corners of her mouth would have been just a little mm-hmm. bit different, it would have made all the difference in the world. Right. And so, you know, Little things what, matter is what you're little saying. Little things matter is what I'm getting at. So when we come to the liturgy, you know, we're going to remain human and fallen, and we're going to get things wrong, and we're going to sing off key, and we're not going to preach as well as we wish, and we're gonna, you know, zone out and whatnot. We're not going to have
1: incense that smells like a dead lady's to closet. The
2: best of our human abilities, and with the help of God's grace, we're gonna to try to do the best we can to create something that is a source of order and beauty and heaven in this otherwise mm-hmm. fallen but world. But the more so you know what you're supposed to do, gosh, yeah. the more agonizing the world is because it yeah. doesn't. So number twelve. Do
0: it. So, yeah. <laughs> so this at least is kind of the,
2: the context for, for these, these sorts of things. This is, so it's not nitpicking. This is how we can worship better and God can be praised more and the world yeah. can. And I we it can is be. kind of nitpicking too, but that's okay. <laughs> put it all together. <laughs> all, right. all right. Are you ready? Drum roll.
1: These are just things I've observed over the years and no particular order of precedence. But one thing I noticed recently is a priest responding to his own dialogue invitation. So a dialogue is when the priest says something that people respond to, like the Lord be with you and they respond and with your spirit. And priests sometimes answering with the people, especially uh, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. There are times in the rubrics when it does say the priest says together with the people, but most of the dialogues are the priest's invitation for the people to respond. And if I said to you, Chris, how are you doing? And I answered back to you, I'm very I'm well. It's, very it. <laughs> like, it's like how is that a conversation? So not bad. What do you know about dialogues, Chris? Why? Why is this? Hmm. Why does I, uh, that'll be the question for every one of these? Why does this bug me? Why does this uh, make me cranky? I
2: mean, whatever your your uh, liturgical uh, psychiatrist or
1: something. Actually, uh, why am I justified in being cranky? That's what I
2: want. hear. <laughs> oh, so I'm here to justify your irascibility. Yes. Uh, well, you know, in uh, there's lots of the way there's lots of ways that texts and the voice is used in the liturgy but the, one of the I think possibly the, the the pinnacle maybe maybe outside of the Eucharistic prayer is is things that are dialogical like you're saying uh, the priest or the deacon or the reader says something or sings something and the people respond Uh, And then after that is these acclamations that you're describing where priests and people say things together. But yeah, I I think what what it sacramentalizes and consequently uh, affects is this uh, conversation, this dialogue through the logos between head and body, you know, Christ and the church and ultimately between heaven and earth. And so, you know, all of, you know, our faith is about not uh, not God monologuing to us, you know, uh, throughout salvation history or throughout the liturgy. He wants to have this cor uh, uh, ad cor loquitor, as uh, I think St. John Henry Cardinal Newman uh, would have said. You know, he wants to have this heart to heart talk and to have one person do all the talking, say it's the priest or the minister, it just, it doesn't sacramentalize and radiate and cause and affect this sort of heart to heart conversation that uh, God wants to have with us
1: because league. liturgically right priest and people together are one image of the mystical body. So if the old school thing was, well, the priest does priest stuff and I sit in the pew and, and read a pious book and then the priest has powers I don't have. So he can fix the Eucharist and I wait around to get it. That's not the 20th century rediscovery of the mystical body. And so if the head is inviting the body to do what he's doing, right? We lift them up to the Lord. I'm going to lift up my heart to the Lord. Uh, you know, He's actually inviting the lay people to rise to the level of their baptismal dignity and do what he's doing, to go in the Holy of Holies with him. And so he doesn't respond to himself. Hey, do you want to go see God the Father in the Holy of Holies? And then he answers, oh, yes, I do. Oh, did you lift your heart to the Lord? Yes, I did, right? No, it, it's a back and forth. It's a calling of the body to do what the head is doing. Is it the end of the world? No. But is it better to have this conversation between head and members so that the entire... Assembly can go present itself to the Father. I would say
2: yes. It it reminds me of that uh, Somewhere in the Old Testament. There's a story where the people come close to uh, Mount Horeb and uh, God speaks in you know thunder and all of the rest and they're just terrified and they run away from the mountain and they say to Moses You go talk to God and we'll wait here and then you come tell us what he said and then you could go tell him what we said and That was okay at one stage in salvation history, but... We're not in that stage anymore. I mean, sometimes, certainly, uh, the priest speaks on behalf of the whole body. But at other times, the people are asked to step forward into the breach and sort of speak for, their, for themselves and for the rest of the world because they participate in this priesthood. And so they are called to mediate too. So yeah, we're at a, we're at a point in the economy of salvation where the, the people are meant to join their voices at certain times and at appropriate places in this uh, restored dialogue with heaven.
1: Okay, there's number
2: I'm, one. I don't maybe we won't get through all of
1: these in, in uh, one podcast. Not at this I, rate. I was just thinking we could, that we but could number, do a number whole, two. Number two. We could, now, this is do a a, not doing what, what we ought to be doing situation. Uh, general instruction number 234. Chris, you know what it says? No. Oh, I thought you had all the stuff memorized, <laughs> but it says that the head is bowed whenever the name of Jesus, Mary, and the saint of the day are mentioned in the liturgy. Wow. How about that? So it's St. Patrick's day, say, and the, you know, one of the prayers says, you know, father, you called St. Patrick to lead the people of Ireland. When the name Patrick is mentioned, you're supposed to um, to bow your head. I did not know that.
2: Yeah. Isn't that kind of amazing? Oh, so you're the one behind this. uh, This issue that Dennis has, Jesse. Not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Actually, it's not 234.
1: I, I'm looking it up now, and it's not that, so it must be something else. But That's, anyway. why,
0: that's why I didn't know, because you were citing the wrong thing that um, I memorized. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, know, I,
1: know. I, ruined, I ruined it with you. <laughs> but it's in there somewhere, I promise. Oh, uh, That's true. I can vouch for that. Is,
2: uh, but what is it? Uh, what's I mean, when the you, theology when you behind this? it? Yeah, why is, why is bowing one's head a big deal or not a big deal? Well, it's something so
1: important is named that it calls you out of your own indifference. Actually, it was 234. It says, The bow of the head is made when the three divine persons are named together. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, now and, I have no excuse. And in the name of Jesus, Mary, and the Saint, um, uh, in honor who's the Mass is celebrated. So, if the word is so important that regular old standing around isn't enough, sort of like uh, genuflecting and when... Um, that word became flesh, you know, used to be in the old old rite and even certain times in the, in the new rite. Um, it calls us out of our indifference and says, oh, that name above any other names, every knee must bend. Um, and so it's a it's a reminder to call us out of our indifference, liturgical yeah. indifference.
2: That uh, isn't that the letter to the Philippians about that name above every other name? Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember how that begins in the office? Uh, Christ Jesus humbled himself. Isn't that part of it? Yeah, who being the and form of God,
1: I did not consider being equality with God at something, something to be grasped. Yeah, at himself. rather
2: himself, took taking the form of a slave. Right, it's like a, But it, the the relation of humility and glory, you know, in the person of Christ. And there's something going on in this action of bowing. I think um, I was reading this. Uh, I don't know how old this book is. In the maybe 1911 or 12 by Romana Gardini called Sacred Signs. Have you mm-hmm. Ever seen it? There's these little meditations on, uh, in this case, uh, genuflecting, standing, incensing, blessing, kneeling, things like that. He's talking about uh, genuflecting and how this is one of the ways in which we honor God by our humility. So we literally humble, we ground ourselves by sacrificing half of our height and touching it to the ground in the presence of something that's so great. And I think what the, the bow is of the head or of, or of the body is uh, kind of in that same species of genuflection and that when we when you encounter something that's so glorious and awe-inspiring is that you signify it or sacramentalize it by, the in this case, the bow of the head. And so it's an outward expression of uh, uh of praise and worship and you know there's this there's this couplet that appears in uh, almost the same form a number of times in the constitution where it says that sacramental signs and symbols both express and foster express the faith and foster the faith so when you bow at these names you're not only expressing uh, the greatness of the Trinity or Mary or the saint of the day and your own humility, but it fosters in you at the same time your own sense of humility that, hopefully after Jesus, will lead to your great glorification uh, with him. So that's why these right. things are important.
1: And the name, you know, in the Jewish tradition is this, it's almost equated with presence. The temple in Jerusalem, that where God dwelt, right, with the Israelites, was a temple to God's name. And so in the Holy of Holies, there was no Statue like the ancients often had the Romans, it was the temple to his name. Name is presence. If you wear your wife's name on a name tag, people are going to think, "Oh, are you trying to be her? What's going on here?" Right. So we automatically recoil at the idea if the name is not accurate with the presence, and so you bow your head at the, the notion of the presence of in honoring the, that person right there with you. All right, number three. Following up on that is the bow at the creed. Uh, what's called a profound bow. Tell us about that, Chris.
2: Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the mm. profound bow, one would make it the, the creed at the, at the words, uh, and was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became, became man. Yeah, I remember, uh, it seems like a long time ago now, I suppose it was a long time ago when, when uh, the Liturgical Institute did the catechesis on the new translation of the Missal, and that was one of the, the lines that changed, was incarnate, what did it used to say? Was born of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. It came in now it says incarnate because uh, I just remember Father Martis explaining this. This was, it was at the, um, it was at the incarnation, not, uh, nine months before the birth that Jesus, uh, you know, took on our our humanity. And sort of, um, again, too, it's kind of a sacramental visualization of Christ's own humbling himself, taking on the hummus you know the, the the earth of our uh, of our humanity. So we express that. Uh, yeah, I'm
0: never going to not laugh at that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think
2: it's humus is the normal way to say it. Is it
1: Humus has two m's and that's a Palestinian food. Humus is one m and that's the ground.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: but hummus tastes like dirt. Well, sometimes it does. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you can buy bags of peat humus like peat moss uh, and put it in your garden. It's uh, H-U-M-U-S. Sorry, not to but, not to embarrass you, Chris, but I think it's funny. Yeah, I can
2: embarrass myself, Dennis. The hummus. It's like saying, <laughs>
1: Chris took on the pizza of our humanity. It's like, mm, hummus. <laughs> mm, anyway, the, back to humanity. The, humanity so pizza.
2: Think from from the mundane to the mundane. Uh, the uh, those two times of the year we actually kneel at those points are at the on March 25th and December 25th. So you actually touch your knee to to the ground but yeah again it's a it, it's a sacramental expression of what christ has done for our salvation and uh, our own humble acknowledgement of the glorious condescension that uh, god has made on on our behalf great and it often says it
1: right there in your missalette in the middle of the creed all um make profound bow and my guess is depending on what parish you go to maybe maybe half of the people do it in an observant place and maybe less or fewer than that in uh you know, a less liturgically <laughs> woke place. And so, okay, just a
2: thing but, to do. Well, but they you're right. They're a thing to do, but they're a good thing to do. Again, in all of this, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, Cleopatra's nose and Mona Lisa's smile and all these things that make great art great is that uh, God is in the details and doing these details right are not insignificant. Rather, yeah. they're entirely, I mean, they're not... <laughs> It, they're not end of the world type of stuff, but they're not insignificant. Yeah. As they they form in us, you know, in uh, the the divine image. So, mm-hmm. you know, to do the bow of the body, the bow of the head, to get the dialogues right, and other things, is the these are the these are the things that uh, that make up our worship, make it right. beautiful, and make us beautiful.
1: And when I do it, I I actually think a little more about the meaning of those words because you can kind of rattle through the creed without paying a lot of attention it's like oh now i have to bow oh the word became flesh and you think oh man or at least i do Wakes i don't you up see a lo- little bit.
0: i don't see a lot of people do the profound bow during that that's because, why it's number three on my I'm, list because i'm bowing myself so i'm not looking uh, else. there you go all, all
1: right, right. Num- number four number four 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 this is one we've talked about before and i think in some question to answer and it's the posture of people's hands during the our father so there's two issues, right? One is the holding hands and one is people, lay people taking the Orons position, which is holding your hands up and out like the priest does. So it's, I guess in this one is particularly the Orons that I'm interested in. We could talk to about the holding hands, but what do you think about that, Chris? Mm.
2: This could be your doctoral exam right here. Uh, yeah, it feels like it. It feels like I'm in the middle of a receiving end of a a, a classroom, <laughs> classroom uh, examination, <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, well, you know, when, when you read the germ, it's, uh, you know, coming, uh, the current books make more of an account for what the the lay people do, what the assembly does, what the laity does. And that, I think, you know, uh, represents a new sort of approach in liturgical instructions versus tables of rubrics, which would have spoken almost exclusively, I think, to what the priest or the deacon or the ministers would do in the sanctuary. But now the general instruction says more about what the people do, but still, it's mostly about what the ministers do, and sometimes it's a little thin on what uh, the people do. So it doesn't say too much about the people should hold their hands this way or should use their hands that way, but hang on, just as an aside, I think people would be amazed to hear that in the ceremonial of bishops, the precision that it does prescribe for ministers in the sanctuary. About you know when one is uh, when a minister is in the sanctuary not holding anything he holds his hands palm together you know palm uh, against palm when a minister in the sanctuary is sitting down he puts both feet flat on the floor and places uh, his hands palm facing down uh, uh, it, you know on top of his legs things like this but that's only if there's a bishop there right <laughs> like, no no that's,
0: no that's only if there's a boss around
2: no but you know I think. We're, we're kind of led to believe that you know the the conciliar books are are based on this you know idea of just being casual when in point of fact I mean they're they're pretty explicit about how these things are to take place yep now that being said it doesn't say too much about what the people do uh, in the assembly. Uh, on some occasions, it says they're not to mimic what the minister, what the priest does at the uh, at the altar. But I think uh, you know, in this regard, you know, the, the holding hands is is not envisioned in the certainly it doesn't show up in the history of the Roman rite. I don't think it's envisioned by the books. You know, the orans position is at least a traditional posture, and is a more appropriate sacramental expression of the sentiments of the Lord's Prayer versus holding hands, which isn't. Um. So you know, I don't know. I uh, the Carstens family are not Orans people. Ourselves, we're not hold the hands people. So you know, I try to encourage our own kids to keep their hands folded. You're
1: cold Northern European Scandinavians. Mm,
2: yeah. Yes. Well, Redemption is uh, sacramentum. Forty-five says
1: um, to avoid the danger of obscuring the complementary relationship between clerics and laypersons, so to avoid uh, clericalization. So I guess, you know, that's a principle, I suppose, if you uh, are looking for some kind of um, foundation for what you ought to do. And sacrosan- mm-hmm. sacrosan- and concilium itself um, talks about that, that um, the signs are important, and there's a lot of stuff you can find, these principles there, but uh, there's no specific way of, forbidden. Lay people may not do this, but the presumption is that if it's not specifically pre prescribed, that it's done, that it's mm. generally not done.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Number, Number four. five. All right. Five. Here, five.
1: Yeah. Now we're on five. Yeah. Okay. The some people making the sign of the cross at the priest absolution at the penitential, rite. Chris, what did I just say? Ooh, I English? do see
2: that a lot. Mm. What did you just see or say? <laughs> so,
1: There's a penitential right where people say, you know, I confess or whatever. And then the priest says, may almighty God. I have mercy what, what, on us. forgive you us, us our course. sins. Bring us everlasting life. Right. Yeah. It used to say you in the in the right. May, priest, uh, may almighty God, have mercy on you. Now it became oh, us. Oh, did it? And I think in the, what we call extraordinary form now that there, there was a rubric to make the sign of the cross at that moment. <clears throat> but now it's not there.
2: So, does that mean we don't yeah, I mean, do it? Yeah, Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you your sins, and bring you to everlasting life. Oh, it is you? Yeah. Okay. No, no, just like you said. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think, um, what's going on here? I, th- I think, you know, what one of the principles of the liturgical reform and restoration was to clarify where some of the elements of the liturgy were not as clear to, uh, to the people. And so... I don't know. Was it was it a matter of confusion? Did people think were they confusing this with a type of absolution one would receive at uh, when going to the sacrament of penance? Well, you know,
1: the current general instruction specifically says uh, this does not. Uh, that this lacks the efficacy of the sacrament of penance. And usually when there's a negative in it, in there, like it doesn't do this. Usually that's a response to some misunderstanding, at least as these things get added in. So that's one of my guesses that people had a a little confused about there.
2: Well, yeah. Okay. So if that was a potential uh, pitfall or misunderstanding, so you see how the language that would have been in Latin uh, before. So however clear or unclear that would have been. Um, but at least in its uh, translation, what, what did you say it was? May, may Almighty God forgive us our sins. Uh, is that what we're saying? So, yeah. so, right, so, so that's changed, and the you know we're not prescribed to make the sign of the cross anymore through those words and through that gesture. Um, it's supposed to be made clear that this is not the type of uh, absolution one would see, receive in the sacrament of a uh, penance. What do you think? Right, so that's kind of a preconciliar holdover, I guess, that people do what they've been doing for a long time. So,
1: you know, is it Mm -hmm. the end of the world? Uh, No, (laughs) but it's not specified in in the general instruction anymore. Could
0: that be just like one of those things in terms of like a, you know, what you do after receiving the Eucharist, like how you sign yourself, or can that just can we just chalk it up to that, like an
2: individual display? Yeah, I think it can get tricky sometimes because there are, um, in general, the assembly uh, is to pray as as a unified body. But that's not the same thing as, you know, everybody becoming, you know, clones and robots of one another um on you you sort of check your personal preferences at the door of the church and you agree that you're going to say things in a certain way and sing things in a at a certain time and stand and sit and kneel at a certain time but there is some some uh what 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 do you want to say there there is some room for for individual uh prayer and desire within those general framework yeah and just where where one Takes precedence over the other is not entirely clear. I mean, obviously, if the if the germ or the the norms, the instructions, you know, direct a certain way, then it, then it is clear. But there's a lot of places where there's silence and things like that. So I, I think of one example. Yeah. But this, Dennis, you remember this maybe 10, 15 years ago? The, the Some places it was said that when communicants get back to their pew, everybody is supposed to remain standing until the very last oh, person yeah. has. Oh, yeah. They're still doing this, that on the West
1: Coast in a lot of places. Really?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, as kind of a, 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 an overzealous app, uh, uh, application of this principle of unity you know that everybody has to be doing the same thing and the holy See came out and said you know right there there's kind of a a generalness um, a unity of posture but when but when one gets back to the pew that's a suitable time for an individual to make his or her own private thanksgiving and offer prayers for you know the particular intentions that one might have so how do you balance the 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 uniformity with uh, le- the legitimate diversity of individuals is, uh, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's not necessarily a tension to be overcome. It's just the way things are when individuals come together in a body, but, uh, applying that, uh, precisely isn't always obvious. Right. I mean, if you would think, oh, I'm going to walk down the aisle
1: and suddenly you start doing a jig on the way down the, uh for communion all of a sudden you're drawing people out of their prayer and you're doing this thing look at me look at me look at me right so in a sense every departure from norms has the possibility of of doing that so if if particular spiritual spiritualities of a particular what layperson uh don't disrupt anybody okay fine right but if Mm -hmm. it if it disrupts the action of the whole body then there's something something wrong there yeah Oh, Are you happy I think now? We should do one more?
0: I think, yeah, do one more <laughs> and then we'll finish the, uh, the back six on the next episode. <laughs> okay,
1: so here's one that I just saw recently. The priest holds the host way up in the air during the fraction, and like way over his head, and breaks it up in the air. And then this is the priest's host there, uh, and then brings it down and uh, continues with Mass. So, what do we have to say about that, Chris? I have, Why do say, I have to say, yeah, you oh. answer this, Jesse. Well, I just want to know what a fraction is. Oh, uh, that's breaking the large host in half. So, toward the end of the Eucharistic so the, prayer, before people receive, the priest will take the host after the consecration and then actually break it in half. It's usually while the, um, and usually while the unused day is, uh,
2: yeah, being I mean, so. it's, it's called the fraction, right? Yeah, it's its own right, right, right. Okay. Well, it's part of the preparatory rites for communion, right? Right,
1: right. right. And you'll see the priest will take a small piece off the host and put in the chalice And so I think there was a time when people thought, oh, uh, you know, the priest is hogging the fraction, you know, kind of to himself And he can't see it because he's like leaning over He should do it way over his head and do it up high so that the people can see what he's doing and it's not becoming a clerical act Um, I think only
0: two-thirds of people thought that
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know (laughs) That's good, Jesse Liturgy people, <laughs> liturgy people, sometimes start right, with so, a decent idea uh, and then take it yeah. too far.
2: No, I think that the priest uh, breaks the Eucharistic bread during the Lamb of God. Right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that when it happens? Well, the German one fifty five says
1: the priest uh, takes the host, breaks it over the paten, and places a small piece in the chalice, saying this quietly, the Lamb of God," and so on. So why do you think it's important to break it over the patent and not hold it way up in the air? First of all, the rules say that, right? Okay,
2: fine. But what's what do you think the issue is there? Well, I think uh, um, you know it just it, it shows a lack of care. I would think for for the Eucharist and Christ present in the Eucharist that um, it's not just conceivable; it's probably possible that it's happening that you know when when you break a piece of bread even um you know the the type of bread that's used in the mass the host of the particles are going to uh, they're they're go going flying to go. right yeah and so you ever open a bag
1: th- of potato chips not very carefully and poof, out they go yeah never <laughs> <laughs> and so over the patent i think it also connects it you know, it catches particles of the Eucharist that might break. But I think it also connects it to the meal aspect of the, um, of the Eucharist, that you're actually near the sacred vessels, and the priest, you know, is careful with this um, consecrated body of Christ, right? And so just to hold it up in the air and, and make a show out of it is not the nature of that fraction right
2: yeah, well, you know, we uh, showing is a good thing in the liturgy because that's what sacraments do: is they show and display and make heard. But you're showing the wrong type of thing. You know, I wish I was. Um, what what patent means plate basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And we don't want to reduce this. Uh, you know, this is not simply a, a fraternal meal when we come together at Mass, but it is a meal. It's a heavenly meal. It's a heavenly banquet. A sacrificial banquet. And so I wonder if there isn't something to that, Dennis, about the association of the, of the Eucharistic bread with the kind of the sacred vessel, the, the plate at the same time, or the, the patent, if you want to put it that way. Right. So there's mm-hmm. a practical reason and a uh, potentially and symbolic reason.
1: So Sure. All the, we're just spawning potential doctoral dissertations with this podcast. <laughs> Where did the rate come from? Why did this rubric get in there? Where did, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so here we are. Spreading liturgical seeds like Johnny Appleseed. What are you? What are you, Johnny uh, Liturgy Seed? Johnny the Liturgy great, Mustard Seed. Great Plains, yes, of uh, yeah. Kansas, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Yeah. So that's yeah. all we have time for, Jesse. I think so. Okay. Yeah.
2: But let's just again lead off. The finish with this point that all this stuff isn't about uh, nitpicking. It's about you know the gods in the details and to do these things right and carefully, or is. Not, not scrupulously, but as is, is rightly as we possibly can, are signs of love that expresses our faith and love of God and, and fosters that in us. And that's why they're, that's why they're important to do. To be mostly it's to. about
1: keeping me from being cranky. And so. there's that. There
0: I just want to take a quick second to appreciate the little joke that you made, Chris, that God is in the details. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> why is in- that hilarious! In- instead of the devil's in the uh. details. Yeah. I love it. Well, I, yeah. Thanks, Jesse. That's the first thing you've said funny in four seasons of this podcast. So, don't congratulations.
2: Get you, don't get used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you better stop being funny. That's my job. All right. Uh, time for a liturgy question. Yeah. Huh? Are you excited for Probably. six
1: more of these in the next podcast? No. Six more. Six although, more. Although, I, although I think somewhere. we just I'm answered six liturgy <laughs> Yeah, they are kind of like liturgy questions, aren't they? But, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so let's answer a different one. All right.
2: So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going, and studying, and sharing the richness of our living tradition.
0: Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care?
1: Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: Okay, this week we have a question from Henrik.
1: Henrik, Henrik, awesome name.
0: Henrik says, I have seen a certain posture at Mass, and he sent a picture, but basically, it's the laity using the oron positions, and I know we just talked about this in Dennis's little uh, mini series. He says, "Why do you think people do this? Why do, why do they choose non-Roman postures instead of the orons posture? And why? And what postures should I do at home? Just stand, but with hands doing nothing, and at mass, do nothing with the arms and hands." I'm sorry, I'm just reading that word for word. Okay, but, but I know we've answered the orons question. But I think the particular nuance here is, you know, what should you do? And then also if you're doing a private devotion saying the Our Father, uh, should, should you not? Could you do the Oran's position then? I, who knows? So I guess Chris will
2: tell me. Do tell me. you take the first part and I'll take the second, Dennis?
1: Well, what's the first part that? Should a person be using it at mass? Yeah, what should part? you do at mass? Well, it's not the prescribed posture for people, uh, lay people at mass. It is the prescribed posture for the priest. And so, therefore, it's not an expectation that people would use the Orans position. This, the hands up and out like the priest does. You know, it is an ancient prayer form. It actually comes from pre-Christian usage. You'll see it in some of the ancient Roman sculptures where the the priests, the pagan rites, will use that that prayer posture. And um, I think, generally speaking, forbidden. No, but if you're being singular at mass and making a scene, and other people aren't doing what you're doing, the kind of unity of the mystical body is. It's uh, interrupted a little bit, and so I would err on—well, not err. I would choose lean on the side of not doing it at mass. So what should you do with your hands? It's not prescribed, but people put them in an appropriate place <laughs> for prayerfulness. <laughs> your Some, pockets. It, well, yeah, sometimes it's— uh, yeah, That's collection. Know, fingers, thumb over thumb, right in front of your heart or different places, but um,
2: there's no
0: All right, Chris, what about— what about uh, mm. private devotion at home?
2: Well, the nature of private devotions are, they have more of a private versus a corporate character. And there's a lot more, even though there's a relationship to the liturgy and liturgical signs and symbols, there's a much greater freedom about uh, how one might pray privately. So I, there's, a lot, I, I, there's a lot more ways you could, if you want to pray in the Orans, you want to hold hands as a family around the table, uh, I think any of those is fine in private devotions.
1: All and right. I tell you, sometimes oh. when I'm feeling prayerful at home, I'll raise my hands in the Oran position in private mm-hmm. prayer. I'm not disrupting anything. It's it's an extension, mm-hmm. I think, in some ways, of the intensity of your desire for prayer and all that, but um, it's not prescribed. And, you know, this is the principle of, of uh, Guardini. The more universal a prayer becomes, the more sort of legal it has to become so that the many can all provide that unity a thousand people can't do different things and still have unity but if you're home by yourself you have a lot more flexibility in in private i
2: I even find now i wouldn't change the words of the our father but i found that some prayers like that come holy spirit and uh, fill the hearts of your faithful i'll even like adapt that a little bit when i'm praying privately and i think that's okay because Mm. it's it's more of an expression of of private devotion and but now when i get into a group of people then uh you know, it, it, it takes that more universal feel. So I think the sphere of private devotions, even though it's not a do-it-yourself type of thing, um, the, you're praying to an objective truth who is God. There's much more freedom for, of, of expression and words and, and the rest, so...
0: All right, Henrik, I hope that answered your question. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at LiturgyGuys or tweet Dennis at DMAC SuperTaster or Dr. DMAC, the weird character from
1: Dr. McNamara. Yeah,
0: Robocop Vandal or something.
1: Scientist.
0: Chris, what should Brother. they do for you?
1: Nothing. All right. You can write to him via snail mail at the Dawson Center in lacrosse.
0: And, and he may see it, he may not. So thank you and God bless.
1: Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Aremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture
2: at Benedictine College.